Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Jay Anelli, and I'm 17 ravens in a human suit. And with me is Andrew Weissel. Hi, I'm Demon Lord Belzenlock. Um, I'm a Vorthos known for posting a lot on uh, Tumblr and Twitter, and I work a lot with MTGS, and I also do this podcast. And Carrie Thomas. I'm the Demon Kothafed. I was dumb enough to send somebody after an <laughs> artifact that could kill me. <laughs> Okay, so uh, in case you didn't get a hint from our opening, today we're going to be talking a lot about Liliana's history, uh, but before that, we want to mention what we forgot to talk about yesterday. I think we forgot. I don't remember. We're doing two podcasts in a row because we've got two stories in a row. It's been crazy. There are preview cards. It's just madness. And uh, we haven't fully edited the other one, so we can't remember either way. So Yeah, this is all happening way too fast. I don't like this. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Uh, so, Andrew, do you want to mention what we think we forgot? I, I think we forgot to mention that uh, the first story, Wednesday's story, confirmed that all these big superstructures we've seen poking out of the ground are Thran ruins, which is what we had speculated they were all the way back in the first episode of the Vorthos cast. So we got that confirmation. So, hooray, they're Thran ruins, probably exposed during erosion during the time spiral crisis. We talked about it for like 10 minutes, and then they just throw it away, throw it out there in the very first story. Yeah. Yeah, just, it just as a throwaway detail. So whatever, you win, wizards. All right. So today, well, I think what we'll talk about today are the promo previews we got. And we're not, again, like yesterday, we're not going to talk about all of them at once. Uh, but there are a few that are just really, really good that we really want to talk about. The first of which is Zalfirin Void. So you might remember from some of our other histories here that um, we talked a bit about how Tefiri uh, phased out his homeland of Zalfir uh, during the Phyrexian invasion rather than stay and fight, essentially. And during the time spiral uh, crisis, it was lost when Jessica used Radha to seal the Zalfir and Rift without phasing Zalfir back in first. So we weren't sure if that was going to be undone by the time we got back or not, but it hasn't been. It's just a big empty void where the ocean has now filled in. The land just stops. And we actually have two very cool artworks on it. Yep. It's the, uh, it's the league promo has art by John Avon, uh, which is sweet. You can see like the, the wispy energy shadow of Zalfir. Two statues of Teferi and the last queen of Zalfir just in in front of emptiness. And like the most tragic flavor text, the wind whispers, come home, but I cannot. Dash Teferi. Come home. <laughs> and then the other version, the main version we have is probably the sexiest, which is uh, a chase stone piece intentionally designed to imitate the Tefiri's protection from C-17, which, oh my god, when you look at the two of them together, it looks so good, because the clouds outline the city that's being phased away in Tefiri's protection. Well, and you have, like, so so in Zelfir and Void, there's these kind of light ray things coming out of the cloud shape of Zelfir that mirror the light that was coming out of Zalfir as Teferi was phasing it out. And we still get Teferi in both arts, but one is the triumphant, I'm saving Zalfir Teferi, and this one is the, I'm all alone on a literal empty gray slab of paint 
Teferi. It's haunting. It's gorgeous. And uh, I want all of them. Not not just like a playset, but I want all of them to hoard in my <laughs> house. So the other card we got is uh, equally gorgeous and bittersweet um, and all the, the problems inherent therein. Uh, it is called Opt and it's just a... I mean, Andrew, you were talking about Opt? What about it? About how weird it is that it was reprinted. Oh, yeah. It's because we just got it in... Was it was it in Rivals or Ixalan? I think it was in regular Ixalan. Yeah. So we just got it, and now it's coming back in Standard, which is weird. This version is so gorgeous, though. But let's talk about let's talk about the art and the flavor of this particular. And it was common op. before. Now it's uncommon. I don't know. That's for limited resources to talk about. Yeah, that's not our <laughs> art deal. <laughs> So this art is just gorgeous. It has the older Tefiri with his mended staff. All this hair, which to my chagrin, it means Tefiri shaves his head and he's not was not just a, a bald kid. And he, he had to shave even as a kid. Yeah. Was that an argument like two podcasts ago or something? I don't know. I was just hoping that kid Tefiri was just bald because he was just like bald for no reason because that was his character. But yeah, we have like broken, given up. I suck Teferi in this opt art, standing in front of the statue of young Teferi at his height of his power. And in young Teferi, the statue's hands is the world. And similarly, in older Teferi, hopefully wiser Teferi, he's holding this glowing crystal. And the flavor text says, the crystal pulsed with the power of Teferi's planeswalker spark. Had Joyra given him a blessing or a curse? What does this mean? I re I, I know this is this has so many so much potential. We're supposed to be the people who know what all this stuff means. This it makes no sense. Why is his spark in a crystal? Why did Joyra have it? Why she give it back? What's happening? How's it getting back into him? Gotta eat it. <laughs> <laughs> gotta, gotta eat the rock. <laughs> well, what I what I love about that flavor text is it it implies so much maturity now on Tefiri's part. 60 years of mortality have given him because yes. he's not sure whether or not this is a good thing where 60 years ago he probably would have done anything to get it back yeah yeah if if you've been listening to our podcast for a while now um first of all thank you second of all you will have heard me come down hard on pre-mending planeswalkers especially from dominaria as being the biggest jerks in the multiverse or is number one teferi's maybe number two <sighs> Teferi... As far as not absolutely very clearly evil planeswalkers. Yeah, that's fair. Like, like we... Te it, obviously, Lashrak and Tevisat and Nicobolas are terrible people. But, like, Teferi does a lot of questionable things himself and is very arrogant. He's definitely up there in terms of good guys with good intentions doing something that is almost as devastating as something a villain would do. Like killing all the people in his home country. Well, hopefully they're not dead. They're just perpetually if they're phased just, out if of they're existence. Perpetually phased out of existence. What's the difference? Anyway, always... <laughs> but the, the the point is, we're seeing a humble Teferi, yeah, uh, which is um, what I really wanted. Well, and it's I, I think it would have been very easy to go into Dominaria sixty years after the mending and just kind of bring stuff back for the sake of bringing stuff back. That's kind of what Time Spiral did, and it was kind of like eh. 
this set has been very carefully crafted to be 60 years after the mending and Dominaria has changed in 60 years and these characters have grown and changed in 60 years and we're coming back into that. Um, I like it. Yeah. And it's going to be very interesting because we know Teferi's going to be a planeswalker. It's going to be interesting to see what he does with that and the choices he makes once he has not not the godlike power he had, but just the ability to do something. Specifically with regards to the crystal, it is especially perplexing since we haven't really seen... We saw the immortal sun trapping Azor's spark, mm-hmm. but we haven't seen that nearly as often as I think people would like to think. And so this being potentially Tefiri's actual Planeswalker spark, the one he had pre-mending, not even at pre-mending power since the nature of the spark has changed, but just being his original spark means that something of that had survived through his sacrifice at the Shivan Rift. Yeah, like, trust us, if this was something that was commonly seen in, in Magic's long lore history, uh we would know and we would tell you this is just baffling what this represents. Um, Which, coming out of a temporal crisis like the Mending, I guess baffling things happen. We'll see. This is is a card that we'll have to be... We'll have to come back to this once the story comes out. What I wonder is if that crystal is a power stone and they're not... They're deliberately not alluding to it because we have an idea... And there's the one of the most popular fan theories is that Urzan never had his own spark, but instead he had Glacian's spark, which was uh, the artificer with a unignited spark from the Thran novel, uh, who Urza's might stone and weak stone had been embedded in and whose soul or essence it had absorbed. So I'm wondering if it's something like this that uh, Joyra charged it somehow. Yeah, I don't know how. And and that's, I was going to say too, because we know Karn was able to hold a spark because he had that Phyrexian Heartstone, which are, is a type of power stone that can hold a soul inside him. So like, that's the only precedence really for yeah. a rock holding us. But I like, I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> that, that's that's like that's like all we can say is that this is really weird and it's very cool so let's move down to the uh to the next card i just wanted to mention real quick cast down because there have been a lot of questions about this uh the flavor text is your life is finished your name is lost and your work forgotten it is though Missouri never existed uh and then it's from chainer's torment Mazura, M-A-Z-E-U-R-A, is uh, the real name of Chainer, and we talked a bit last time about how the Cabal took these other names like Chainer so that their real name, which has this kind of real power over them, could never be found. And so this is an example of what kind of leverage that real name gives other people in the Cabal over you. Yep. Uh, And we should mention these are uh, opt cast down and uh, Shauna Sase's Legacy are FNM promos, and they have fancy new FNM promo art, uh, not art, frames, um, that has a watermark with a Planeswalker symbol. It looks very cool. Oh, I just had an epiphany, too, and we can talk about this more later. But if everyone in the Cabal has taken on a different name, what if Belzenlock has taken on a different name as well? But that's what he's doing. 
way or do you mean that name. Bells and Luck well he's taking his... other people's names but what if yeah. Bells and Luck isn't his name anyway that's just a minor thought I literally just had uh, so then we have Shauna Sisse's legacy uh, who continues the tradition of um, Sisse and her family not actually being in control of the weatherlight <laughs> it's a it's a gorgeous piece by uh, Magali Villeneuve uh, and Shauna is a member of the crew of the Weather Knight, which is fine. I mean, when Gerard took over the Weatherlight, it was kind of bullshit. But with hey, we don't swear on the show. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. You know, you know me. I can't help it. Uh, with Shauna, you know, Joyra, she kind of had salvage rights. You know, you you dig this thing that's been in the sea for centuries. You dig it out. You repair it. It's yours. You know, so it didn't really belong to Shauna's family anymore. I just love, I, I touched quite a few nerves when I alluded to that on Twitter. But yeah, and she's also cool because she's an uncommon. So if you're looking for her for Brawl, which is that new format they just announced, which is a, basically a standard commander, she'll be a easy one to get for something like Arena if they move it to that format. Got a couple other promos. The uh, Rivals of Ixalan Store Championship promo is Steel Leaf Champion, which has a uh, an elf riding an elf knight riding a kavu which is really cool not really much lore attached to that at all but if you like kavu elves are now riding them so you're welcome that's awesome <laughs> uh lanoir elves is back both as the open house promo and then as the pack art the pack art is uh chris ron art that we got way at the beginning i think that was one of the the packs unplugged pieces that we saw you know what's funny is i actually already named it lanowar elves and it has been sitting in my art folder as lanowar elves forever so i'm glad i don't have to change it i i feel like that was a pretty low piece of fruit to grab at but kudos anyway <laughs> I, I think it's pretty <laughs> well, easy thank you because it it has those kind of geometric face tattoos like the original oh alpha yeah yeah elves. well i thought so it's funny. I thought they were elves from Lanawar, which is why I named it. I didn't think oh. they would actually literally be the mana dork Lanawar elves. Yeah, we also got this Jin. The draft weekend promo is Sahid Jin of the Lamp. It's a legendary Jin who's. There's going to be a lot of legends in this set that don't really have any lore attached to them. They're just there to kind of fill out the legendary, the mechanical legendary theme. Kamigawa Block was like that too. But he is a cool reference to Mahamodi Jin. Like one of the original big flying beaters of the game, which was also four and two blue for a five six flyer, which is what he is. Except he has this really flavorful pay four mana and tap an artifact, so you can pay six mana and get your big beefy flyer, or you can pay four mana and rub the lamp, and he comes out, which I think is <laughs> awesome. Um, and I'm th I'm surprised that this is the first gin that's had such a elegantly templated lamp ability. You know, they avoided Jin outside of like cons of Tarkir. They avoided Jin for a long time. No, no real lore significance is he, but he's a really flavor, individually flavorful card. Um, and the card itself just tells a really cool story. I like those kind of cards. Uh, one last thing I want to mention about these promos before we move on is that I there there's a good thing and a bad thing about these FNM promos. The good thing is they look a lot like the Planar Chaos um, shifted cards, the ones yeah. the cards that had been shifted from one color to another. They had darker frames and white text. Yeah, they look really cool. The bad part is they do not have like new promo artwork to go along with them. Yep. which is a, a a Vorthos disappointment, but it's not it's not that bad. Yeah, they ha they have to balance printing FNM promos that people actually want 
and making them look cool enough to be cool promos. And given the history of the program and how poorly <laughs> they've lived up to, I, I mean, like in a calendar year, we would get like maybe two cards that actually saw standard play, <laughs> which is really bad for your traditionally standard promo. So we're not getting new art because the lead time on that's too long. So they can better choose playable promos closer to the production date that they need. So we, lo we lose out on new art, but we gain really cool frames and really nice foiling. Um, if you watched the street, the live stream they had when they previewed these, um, they had some live video of them. The foiling looks awesome. So if, if you don't mind not getting new art for them, they are very pretty cards. All right, moving on. Uh, before we get into the rest of today's story, we're going to have Carrie walk us through Liliana's history to date and when certain things appeared in the story. Because, you know, we think of this as all kind of one cohesive story right now. But in reality, like Liliana and the Chain Veil plot have been has been kind of piecemealed over a decade where different things were introduced or things were tweaked. It's the last big plot point from before the Magic Origins soft reboot. Pretty much everything that was important before Magic Origins has been resolved and except this big story. And it's also one of the first major Planeswalker stories they were telling with the Lauren 5. So, I mean, it's changed so many hands and been told and through so many mediums. Go for it, Carrie. Yeah. yeah, just lay it on us, Carrie. Tell us how ugly this gets. So where this all starts is the Lorwyn 5. When they were first introduced, they had a few short bios on the mothership, but they were exactly that. They were very um, brief explanations of who the characters were and went into very minimal detail because things still need to be fleshed out in years and years of story to come. In October 2007, though, is when we first learned that Liliana had made deals with demons to be able to maintain her youth and her power um, after the mending had hit. Moving on from there, The Hunter and the Veil was the first webcomic featuring Liliana, and this is her little tango with Garuk on what we would later discover is the Plane of Chandelar, but is the Plane of Chandelar. She has been tasked by the demon lord Kothafed to retrieve this veil from an Onaki catacomb, and she goes into the catacomb, she grabs the veil, and throughout the comic we learn that the veil is capable of protecting her from her demons collecting on her soul. So Kothafed has now effectively sent Liliana on a mission to get something that would bulletproof her from him. And so she would later return and kill Kothafed using the veil. Um, in between those two stories, though, January 2009, we have Agents of Artifice. It's standout because it's her working alongside Bolas to retake the consortium after a branch of the consortium had been taken away by Tezzeret. But there is no Raven Man, as we know him to be like kind of a staple in her stories today. And she also is in fear of the demons on Grixis. Um, once she finds out there's demons there, she's kind of hesitant, which is a strange detail, but will make sense possibly with more information to come later in the series. And now we know that she definitely didn't have a demon master on Grixis, so it's especially standout. Um, but by the end of the story, Bolas is offered to potentially free her from her deals and protect her from the demons. 
um, but she refuses and says that she won't trade one master for another. After that, The Curse of the Chainville is announced, which was Liliana's Planeswalker novel, and in the PR blurb that went up on the mothership, it said that it will, quote, it will give her the power to get free from the demonic pact that drives her, even if it means killing every demon in the multiverse. So this potentially connects to the Grixis demon fear, but it also sounds as if there's a capability of any demon on any plane collecting on Liliana's soul, and that it's more than just the four demonic masters that we knew of. In April of 2010, The Curse of the Chain Veil, after being postponed once, is officially cancelled slash postponed indefinitely. Um, Not a surprise there. This story also had claimed to have had Nicol Bolas going after the Chain Veil for its power, so that is something that has fallen entirely by the wayside under the current story structure, but again, hypotheticals. These are just chopping up and changing hands as it goes. Uh, Then we get a little bit of radio silence. Um, the Raven's Eye comes out. There's the full explanation of Liliana's origins and our first intro to the Raven Man, where he has manipulated Liliana into corrupting Josu and igniting Liliana's planeswalker spark. It's kind of a detail that gets rewritten with magic origins, but continuing, he can also shapeshift when we see him on Chandelar, and claims to have seen the Onaki die that night that they were all exterminated. Extremely important detail. Extremely important detail. But also to note, um, when the Raven Man encounters Liliana in the Caligo Forest prior, he says that, Andrew had brought this up on a prior podcast, that they needed to ensure that Josie would survive this war because he was their future leader. With today and yesterday's stories seems especially suspicious that he could have been working with Belzanok, but... Hey, turns out Josu ended up as a high-ranking Lich Lord in Belzenlock's Cabal army. Yeah. What a surprise. It seems like Raven Man had an influence on that, but again, this is just a web of expanding and expanding character interactions. We get Liliana on Innistrad doing the contradictory thing, which is killing a demon. Um, Demons on Innistrad have a special ability attributed to them where they will manifest later upon destruction. Um, but Gristlebaron, once released from the Hell Vault, is not capable of that in the face of the Chain Veil, and so she destroys him. Then we get more radio silence until the Veil of Deceit, which takes place on Chandelar, um, one of Andrew's favorite stories for a detail outside of the Onaki Catacombs. But it, it, is, um, it is after... It's that ogre sex, you- that's the detail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's also very important because uh the raven's eye part three this is another pivotal one if you're theorizing about the raven man yeah the raven man claims to have been in charge of getting liliana to take the chain veil which is not how we understood it to be we understood it to be one of her orders from um the demon lord kothafad to liliana to retrieve the chain veil for her but considering the magic of the veil was protecting her from the demons collecting it makes sense if the raven man has her interests in mind and her survival in mind that the demons could never collect on her soul and so it is again a weapon against her but alongside of this we have duels little planeswalkers 2015 and kirkesh the card which both display kothafed tattoos on their chest which either means that kothafed is on chandelar and has interacted with the Onaki, 
that or Kothafed has some kind of interplanar knowledge of the Onaki and is able to summon Liliana across planes to retrieve an artifact and bring it back to an entirely separate plane. I think it would be weird if he was on Chandelar, because then why didn't he just go get the veil himself? Somebody might have taken a stab at that snake body. <laughs> that long, long body. Maybe he didn't want to be cursed because he saw what happened to Obnixilis. I don't know. Yeah. The next time we see Liliana is with her reintroduction via um, Liliana's origins and magic origins. This story is probably the third or fourth pivotal moment in the storyline of Liliana. It drags Bolas into the plot. Prior to this, Liliana had made the demonic deals on her own, or that was how most fans understood it. And now we have, it is revealed that Bolas was the one who connected her to the demons to grant her power. Also of note in this story is that Bolas is aware that the Raven Man exists and that Liliana has bested him, quote, in the past. She is concerned with potentially saving Josu and redeeming herself during this story. But as we'll find out later, that doesn't shake out the way we like it to. July of 2015, The Unkindness of Ravens. Raven Man doubles down on being tied to the Chain Veil and that the Veil protects her from being claimed by demons. Then we move into the Gatewatch general era of storytelling on Shadows of Ranistrad. She tries cracking the veils to get at the spirits inside and kind of freeing it of their whispers inside of her mind. And on Amenket, she is protected by Raven Man while using the veil from dying and then would later use the veil against, um, I'm sorry. Razaketh. Too many demon names, yes. She would later use the veil against Razaketh. Didn't she not use it on Razaketh? That's she? when the Gatewatch helped. I'm not sure if she actually used the veils because she ends, she does take necromantic control of the crocodiles and eat Razaketh, which is really gross. I don't remember if she actually uses the right the veil to do that or not. So on Amenket, she is saved by the Raven Man and then is defeating Razaketh, and that leads to today's magic story, which or yesterday's magic story. Notably, she discovers that Josu is alive and is a lich under the ranks of Belzalok. And we should note, uh, so the Raven Man encourages her to take Bolus's deal to let her live, which is how they end up on, they began the last story on Dominaria. Yes. Uh, so this story, Liliana has learned that Josu is alive, well, ish. <laughs> Undead, alive, not really dead. Right. It's confusing when things don't actually die. She wanders into the Caligo morass to the place where she first met the Raven Man and like calls out to him to challenge him for information. And he plays just very, very coy the whole time. He she asks, like, why, why uh, did you do this? I mean, we should be clear. I, what I really like about the story is that Liliana is accepting responsibility and being honest with her allies, which is two things she hasn't been up until this point. So she recognizes that it was her, but she wants to know why the Raven Man had tried so hard to influence her to damn her brother, um, and why he had wanted her to go with him. And he just says, like, you know, I think you know why. And I was like, ah, oh. because as you all know, I'm a giant Raven Man theorist. And so we got, we got real close today. Like, all these questions were brought back up, and then we didn't get any answers. Yeah, this story had Liliana asking all the right questions to get the answers that we have wanted about this whole subplot. But 
the Raven Man in his usual not helpful nature did not answer any. Although I, I think Liliana's close because she she guessed that the Raven Man wanted to ignite her spark so that she could be a planeswalker. She also mentioned that he could have been anything from an ancient planeswalker to an elder dragon in human form, which really made me laugh because I'm like, oh, did 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 Liliana read our articles, our, our, our everything we've written on the Raven Man about this point? And we're two for two for elder dragon references and magic stories for Dominaria. Yeah, for real. I thought that was really interesting because if the text is playing the Who is the Raven Man game, I'm really hoping we at least get an answer, if not a card, by the end of the set. I I have a strong feeling now he's not going to have a card by the end of the set, but Bolus Plans set Core 2019, I'm still hopeful. As long as the Raven Man still exists, there's a chance for him to have a card. So even... Even if we find out his identity in this set and he doesn't get a card, that's not necessarily the end. And there's always like commanders and core sets and stuff. I think, right. I think we're close. So Liliana returns to Gideon, who she left at the town of Vess, and tells him the truth and is shocked when Gideon's like, yeah, all right, let's do, let's help put your brother to rest. Because I guess she thought that he would just run off too. She didn't realize that Gideon's attitude isn't a facade like hers is he isn't doing anything to manipulate people so this is kind of in the way that ixalan blanc really broke down jace as a character and then restructured him in a new way um we're we're kind of seeing liliana who is now at rock bottom pushed to her limits and not able to rely on her own methods like her only option now is that she retains Gideon's trust, which is something she's not at all historically been comfortable with. She's always been duplicitous. She's always intentionally kept people at a distance or pushed them away when they got too close and done stuff herself. What I love about the situation is that Liliana has now found herself in a situation where her survival depends not on her tricking her only remaining ally, but (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> honestly and just just honestly like just being a friend to Gideon like being being true friends being honest with each other being emotionally vulnerable in front of him using the power of heart yep no like like you're joking mm-hmm. but like it's that's literally like t- yep. in order to to get <laughs> Gideon to go along with this like she literally just has to say oh, by the way this whole thing involves my brother and my the ignition of my planeswalker spark and it's very personal to me and this is very hard and i'm very angry and i don't know if i can do this and please help and gideon's the last person to make fun of that well yeah well and like like this is the complete reversal of um catching what we saw up. in uh what, what was that I'm catching up Yes, uh, which was, I think, the last story before the official Battle for Zendikar block started, where Liliana's at dinner with Jace. She can't even ask Jace, who she's been had a relationship with, to help her with the chain veil. Who, and then who Gideon she's been shows what? Up. I'm sorry? I'm sorry. J- she's, she's been what, Jace? She had a relationship <laughs> sleeping with Jace. <laughs> um, sorry, I, I couldn't resist. Go ahead. But, but like, th- this is... This is the absolute opposite end of that spectrum where she is she sits out the whole Battle for Zendikar and Oath of the Gatewatch story 
because she doesn't want to ask Jason Gideon for help. Yep. And this is her on the other side of that having to ask for help. But yeah, like like you mentioned, this scene and this part of the story only works because it's Gideon on the other side. And uh, someone someone who has a lot of integrity and a lot of humility to help people when they need it and when it's asked of him. But also we see Gideon kind of before the fight with Bolas, Gideon would have left Dominaria and gone to try and punch Bolas again. Gideon had some hardcore survivor's guilt, which yes. is something I'm, I'm fairly familiar with where he just wanted to put himself in situations where he could have like a heroic death, but his invulnerability made that impossible. Classic Greek mythology exactly. torment, um, which is cool because he's from the Greek plane. Which leads us to the, to the next part really well, where he has to rally pockets of banalish troops. Which is something he's good at. And, well, to do it, he has to talk to the the battle angel in charge. I think her name is Rail. And she talks about how she failed. And Gideon, in a, in a moment of, in a similar moment of Empathy. character growth to Liliana, t- says, uh, you know, just because you failed doesn't mean it's over. I forget what the exact line is, but it's a complete 180 from limits. Rael said flatly, then you know I failed. And Gideon says, you lost a battle, Gideon told her. It doesn't mean you failed. Which is not something Gideon, or I should say Kithian, would have said after killing all his friends trying to kill the god of death, Erebos, when his his planeswalker spark ignited. When he lost that battle, he shed his entire identity, took on a new name, and essentially tried to become a new person. And in Limits, just like catching up, we see his character's weakness, which is he refuses, he ends up failing because he refuses to fail, essentially. Like, he just pushes himself until he physically breaks in battles on both Ravnica and Zendikar. I mean, even later in the Zendikar block, there's, um, before the Battle of Seagate, there's a scene where he's leading the Zendikari coalition and he finds himself alone surrounded by Eldrazi because he's just thrown up his invincibility shields and run straight into battle and he looks back and realizes the army he was leading is getting slaughtered which causes a kind of traumatic flashback for him but yeah like we're also seeing as much as we're seeing Liliana um, show vulnerability we're seeing Gideon we're seeing Gideon uh, showing more growth and he's more I guess he, tactical, I guess is the word I want to use, but he's more cognizant of his own limitations, that that he is less than his mythic desires, I guess. Yeah, I think that's fair. So why don't we move, talk about a little bit about what Gideon gets to do in this episode? Yes, he gets to fight. Without his Sorrel, by the way, I don't think we mentioned that last week either, he has lost his Sorrel in the battle against Bolas, which is the big bladed weapon he has. Maybe he needs to go back to Theros and find his dad to get a new one. Uh, yeah, maybe. I wonder if Heliod has any. I don't know, do you think Heliod has any history with special magical weapons? Gosh, you know, I'm I'm not sure. 
we're being very sarcastic. Uh, we're referencing <laughs> God's End, the super magic sword. Okay, so what the listeners probably don't recognize is that together we have worked on another piece that'll come out when the next Theros block is announced or the next Theros set is announced. Uh, that is goes into some detail about Gideon's, let's say, parentage. Demigod Gideon. So Gideon gets to be a hero this set. Uh, because he, I'm sorry, this episode, he has an illusion to look like a skin witch and he runs in and distracts this dread shade, which is this really wickedly cool looking piece of artwork. Yeah, the art's in the story. It's, it's scary. And he leads it away into what turns out to be a pack of skin witches, which he has to end up fighting all of them at once, more or less. Which which I just realized, I didn't realize this earlier, but. So so in Liliana's origin story, when she's trying to find this route to heal Josu, she ends up in this same part of Dominaria, because this is where she's from. She ends up fighting skin witches herself. Uh, I, I just realized this kind of funny parallel where now Gideon is in the same location also fighting skin witches, which is, I guess, a testament to... A lot of parallels this time. So some people on Tumblr have immediately turned this into... Um, Gideon and uh, Liliana having an attraction, but like, I would really like to just start with mutual respect, which they're developing (laughs) for one another. Um, We can go from there. (laughs) But uh, as they're as they're growing as characters, I just like to see them developing a mutual respect for one another. Yeah, previous to this, Liliana has looked at Gideon and thought he was just a dumb jock, and Gideon has looked at Liliana and thought she was just a conniving a-hole, pretty much. Neither of them were necessarily wrong. Yeah, they're both sort of right, but they have they have very much not liked each other, which is very apparent in Eldritch Moon during the Battle of Thraben. Yeah, that discomfort on the card art. Yeah, and uh, a little bit during the Amaket story. They would be each other's last choice to hang out with. Pretty much, a a you they would have to be the last two humans around to 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 actually get together. But I think these first two stories they have made great strides in being competent allies. Good call. I like it. So let's move on to the next piece, which is Liliana's confrontation with Josu, which uh, th- they got to Josu much faster than any of us expected. I, I'm glad we were right that. Josu was going to be this high-ranking member of the Cabal, but I did not expect him to go down in the first two stories out of 12. Like, what's what's in store? Because this is like, this was a major plot point that we were expecting for a while. I, th- I think part of it is because Liliana's story has now been stretched out for over a decade. So it feels like, it feels like this should be a culmination of 10 years of events, but really it's only a culmination of two years of events that were obliquely referenced here and there that we picked up on and most people probably didn't so like yeah that's true the chain veil has been progressing at the rate of like one story a year like internally for me this feels like it should have been a bigger moment but the the way this actual story has played out since magical origins this is probably appropriate so I, i i just kind of have a skewed perspective because liliana's story is so old and I was really engrossed in the Chain Veil stuff before Origins even started. Yep. <laughs> but it's still a tense scene that ends really well. Yeah, and we'll we'll get to that in a second. But there's an artwork that goes along with it that I think will be a story spotlight. Um, 
which is a very cool image of Liliana casting some kind of spell and this pinkish violet energy radiating off her radiating off her tattoos as well purple haze uh (laughs) yes that's perfect so the purple haze radiating off her what's interesting and this is something carrie pointed out as we were talking before the cast is the shapes formed by these vaguely tattoo-like designs, the the etchings on her skin. They appear like her Kothafed tattoos, but yeah, they got a little bit more figure outside of her body to make them look like demon horns and wings. Yeah, and specifically like uh, Belzenlock-style horns, at least, coming out directly from the sides, which is very interesting. And there's also three ravens around her. Yes. And she's out front of the, the Vess estate, the Vess castle. So I think this is a bit of foreshadowing, especially when it comes to those ravens. Uh, If you follow me at all, you know I'll have mentioned that I think the culmination here is going to be Liliana kills Belzenlock, but she believes it's going to free her. But in reality, it gives the Raven Man the opportunity to take control of her with all the demon deals and none of the demons to be indebted to. Yeah. And the the ravens flying around her as she has this like demonic silhouette design around her seems just like a very interesting bit of foreshadowing. Mm -hmm. And it's further foreshadowed. Well, maybe not that, but there's a bit of ominous foreshadowing that I'm sure Andrew will be the best at reading of the Curse of Vess. She she ends up leading, luring Josu into... Uh, the exact location where the ritual to turn him into a lich occurred and she throws on the chain veil and channels all this necromantic energy and undoes the lich's curse on him and um, I want to say kills him but he was already undead so like like super duper kill puts his soul to rest which is what she's been seeking to do (laughs) for like 200 years so uh, which is for from a character development standpoint is a huge moment for Liliana because she's showing a lot of maturity in accepting that her brother's going to die. And, you know, she made a decision 200 years ago to try and keep her brother alive. And she's only now realizing she should have just let him die. So big moment for her. But as he's dying and as his body is falling apart, he, she's like, it's over. You're finally, you know, the, the curse of the house of Vest has ended. And he's like, Nope. And she's like, (laughs) what do you mean? And he, He's like, this is not over till till you're done. And she's like, but I wasn't even here. And Joseph goes, of course you weren't. Joseph's voice strengthened even as his body failed. What do you think happened after you left? They died, all of them. Father tried to lead me to the lead me to rest. I killed him myself. Mother took our sisters away, searching for a cure for me, and searching for you. She thought you lived, thought you'd stolen away. She followed a rumor of magic that could save me, and the journey killed her. Others took up the burden, our sisters, our cousins, trying to stop me, to destroy me. All of them died. He was fading now, fragments of his body disappearing into windblown dust. You killed me. You killed them. It is you, Liliana. It will always be you. You are the curse of the house of Fess. And he was gone. 
Liliana thinks she's finally done this caring thing out of love that she's been trying to do for 200 years. And holy crap, that is not the way she wanted this to go. <laughs> yeah, because she's. we should note he's been freed of Bells and Locks influence. So this is just Josu talking. Just Josu, like, laying it out straight that Liliana, you're a horrible person and you have completely screwed over this family and by letting me become a lich you have screwed over this world and that's gotta be soul crushing so now she's really angry at bells and locks so i'm excited because we're gonna get very angry and vindictive liliana and she is very powerful and she has a very powerful artifact and very powerful friends so so one thing I want to note real quick about that whole thing about the cursing Josu is Liliana mentions it earlier. She accepts responsibility, but she also mentions like she was a teenager when it happened. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, the punishment did not fit the crime. People warned her, but she was just an arrogant teenager. She didn't deserve this to happen to her any more than like a, I, I used this example on Tumblr than like a, a, a teenager speeding deserves to be paralyzed. You know, this is just like the worst possible thing that could have happened. But the problem is because she never returned because she was off doing her own thing, she wasn't able to stop what she had started. So the last thing we want to talk about is Belzenlock, the elder demon. Elder demon. We've never seen this before. Well, what's interesting is they're like bringing this elder type into the forefront again. So yeah, we really don't know what this means with elder demons. You know, we just saw the elder dinosaurs who were kind of the forefathers of the other dinosaurs on Ixalan. I think it's very useful that we just had the elder dinosaur discourse because we got what elder means for them as ancient, kind of a, a primal example of that creature type on that world. Um, and extraordinarily powerful and very old. Metaphysical connection to the lesser beings of their kind and yes. to the plane itself. Yeah. So what does that mean for Belzenlock? Because he is an elder demon of Dominario, which means he's probably been around since forever, is kind of the paragon of demonness on Dominaria. Potentially has a metaphysical connection to every demon on Dominaria, which is a lot. The Liliana's other three demons were not elder demons, not even Grizzlebrand, who was one of the oldest and most powerful demons on Innistrad. So what does this mean? And that's hard to say. So one note of elder dragons, at least, is end with the elder dinosaurs. Oh my god, I can't believe I forgot the name. Who's the King Ghidorah Godzilla mashup from Zakama. Ypsilon? Zakama, thank you. They're kind of the progenitors of... Uh, the lesser dragons and dinosaurs on the plane. And especially in, in Zakama's case, it's, it's kind of implied that Zakama is the inspiration for this Sun Empire's Threefold Sun mythology, um, which in turn is the, the inspiration for Gishath. So Gishath is kind of this kind of religious interpretation of Zakama. So you know what's interesting is we don't actually have a lot of historical basis for demons on Dominaria because it's always been Phyrexia. Like Gix was a Phyrexian demon. Not not only Phyrexian demons, but there was also a large chunk of the game where magic just didn't have demons because 
mid-90s parental outrage from soccer moms. So, like, if you've ever wondered why there are so many big vampires at Rare during in a lot of earlier Magic sets, vampires used to be Black's iconic creature because Magic wouldn't do demons um, until... I don't know when they... I forget exactly when they left, but they did not come back until Onslaught Block. And it was, like, a big deal that Magic had demons again. And this was, like, right when I started playing. And I'm like, I don't get why this is a big deal. And then I read the history. I'm like, uh, yeah, that makes sense. We should note that, like, Grinning Demon from the Onslaught Block looks a lot like Belzenlock himself. Yeah, Otario was the... Well, that block was the big reintroduction of the demon type. Yes. But the importance of them not factoring too heavily into the lore is they can basically do whatever they want with bells and lock and it's also interesting because he's an elder that means he was probably been around for a very long time what is his what was his interactions with the elder dragons of the plane or the numena like if he's been around that long and if he has such an important connection to the plane itself does he have some kind of relationship with Kuber, the Black Numena, who ended up being important to the Cabal's stuff on Altaria? Like, it, it could be not that much of a coincidence that Belzenlock is now leading the Cabal. Yeah. The the idea that he is this kind of ur-demon who, who spawns all demon-ness on the plane is kind of reminiscent of something the Chain Veil does, which is... Uh, when the chain veil Thank you for that was a good segue. Liliana has been able to wield the chain veil without any consequences for some reason. Um it's implied that she was destined to yield it in some of the stories or that she's just powerful enough to yield it to wield it. Um but it has cursed Garrick and it has cursed Obnixilis, who was a human before he was a demon planeswalker. We learned in Garrick's story that he's being turned into a demon, a world destroyer, uh, much like Obnixilis was. Through our Raven Man theories, we made a lot of connections between the Chain Veil and potentially this planeswalker, Arzakhan, who was a demon planeswalker, who, uh, he, he was the main antagonist in the Micropose Chandelar game. We should mention he had a demonic appearance, but like all planeswalkers, that might not have been his true form. Right. Um, but, you know, he had, uh, his head was a big skull with huge curly horns and purple glow inside, which kind of looks like we got an image of Josu in his lich armor in um, yes. the first episode mm-hmm. of the story. And when his helmet is down, it looks a lot like Arsakan's head and has the same glowy purple energy that is also in all these cabal individuals we've seen in art and also what Liliana's magic looks like. And is there a like super conspiracy as tinfoily as we're going to get? Could <laughs> Belzenlock being an elder demon afford him some kind of power that links... Arzakhan and the Chain Veil um, and all this demonic purple energy and this whole plot. Like, is this kind of, is is he the axis around which this whole plot revolves? Like, maybe? Or he's just another piece. But either way, like, let's, let's break down the art connections real quick. So in the Chandelar game, we never, we see like a glimpse of Arzakhan, but he looks kind of like a, he looks almost like Tybalt without any clothes <laughs> in the intro. I'm not sure that's actually meant to be him or just random images that they pulled at the time. But what we really see is like a, a skinny dude with a big demon head. What we really see is a statue with this skull and curly horns with the purple glowing eyes. 
we see something very similar in the art for the chain veil right above the chain veil, which is a skull with curly horns. And then below it is a thin, gaunt face also with curly horns, which I believe is a depiction of Limdul, who was trapped in a mysterious artifact on the plane, which I might have mentioned a whole lot in the Ice Age uh, podcast and online literally like every day. That connects to that um, lich art that Andrew was just talking about. And there's an important detail because when, when Liliana is visiting the Onaki catacombs where the chain veil was stored, because the chain veil was built by the Onaki, or I guess not built, forged by the Onaki, Kirkesh is aware of Josu when Liliana is talking to him which seems really weird because he's on Chandelar and Josu's on Dominaria. So, like, there has to be some kind of interplanar connection for all this to make sense anyway. We we know there is because, Carrie, do you want to talk about what you had discovered in the webcomic? Um, specifically? Oh, the necklace? Oh, oh, that necklace. <laughs> that necklace. Yeah. Well, this might have been an original intention of the webcomic, but during... The Raven's Eye, which is um, Liliana's origin story. You get to see on Raven Man's neck and approximately two or three panels, he is wearing a necklace with kind of a red ruby in the middle. And later on Chandelar, you see the same exact reference material on the Onaki Ogre skeleton inside of the Onaki catacombs alongside the chain veil. When Liliana enters that catacombs in comic that was actually printed previously to this, she had destroyed that object um, believing it to be the veil and then was led into another room where the actual veil was held so there was some kind of spirit energy released with the destruction of that artifact yeah it's a lot like harry talked about earlier there are a lot of pieces to this and we're not entirely it's gotten it's grown so convoluted that we're not entirely sure how everything fits together but the fact that belzenlock is an elder demon and not just a demon might be an important crux in something important <laughs> with all like, we'll we'll see like like as as this story as dominari's story progresses and we learn more i mean it's definitely something we're going to keep talking about um and we're going to work on figuring out ourselves and once we figure stuff out we'll obviously let you know we'll blast it to the world so one last my let me do my last note here real quick is that chain veil theorizing uh we mentioned the veil of deceit and the raven's eye part three both of those essentially establish the raven man as having a connection to chandelar in the past and if you go through the list of pre-existing characters that have that history it really only leaves arzakhan the demon looking planeswalker we talked about earlier and limdul the necromancer that's basically all that's left. Uh, unless they decide Lashrak didn't really die from Nicobolus capturing him and using his spark to seal the Madaran Rift. And Andrew, your final thoughts. This kind of whole Bells and Lacks section was kind of my final thoughts. But, but, uh, um. <laughs> uh, no, this story in, in general, like I've, I've been charting character changes and character growth and character moments from Magic Origins. We're now, to two to three years later finally getting a lot of payoffs for a lot of things that have been set up and talked about foreshadowed um i talked about this in the last episode with nissa and chandra and how i nailed a lot of predictions last summer but but it it, it just really it feels really good to be at this moment in magic storytelling where we're finally getting these moments 
uh, now for Liliana and Gideon as well. And Carrie, last thoughts. Dragging the Magic the Gathering microprose game into the Liliana um, chain bill story is like one of the least complex things that they have already done with that series. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's be clear. Last episode, they made Dacon freaking Blackblade number one, the most obscure, one of the most obscure of the Armada comics. They made it canon and even a little bit relevant. <laughs> so it would not surprise me if uh, the Chandelar video game and manual all of a sudden mattered. We see you, Kelly Diggs, putting all this weird esoteric stuff in our story. And also, Ethan. Yeah, we see both of you. And re really well, Doug and Jenna, because they're the ones who wrote all those old web, web comics. We see you, too. Yeah, that's the that's the other thing, Jenna. We, we know you wrote a lot of those old Liliana stories, so the conspiracy extends to Wizards of the Coast as well. Put on your tinfoil hats, people. They're coming for your brains. And that's the Vorthos cast.